good to have you here today. My name is Tom, one of the pastors here, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that. Listen, when Alyssa Milano bravely posted on Twitter, if you have ever been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too in reply to this tweet. Nothing could have prepared her for the response that she got. When Milano woke up the next morning, 30,000 people had already replied to her tweet with the hashtag me too. She said she just burst into tears when she saw this. But within 24 hours, 12 million people had chimed in that they too had been harassed, had been assaulted, many sharing their stories of abuse and assault. With the silence broken, the Me Too movement has just exploded out from there, becoming a worldwide phenomenon and affecting every sector of society. Women who have for so long been harassed and abused and exploited have stood up to sinful power and called it for what it is, unacceptable, wrong. The Me Too movement has been hailed the greatest social upheaval in decades, perhaps the greatest since the 1960s. And in just a few months, while over 100 prominent men in business, in in news, in entertainment, government, education have been publicly accused of sexual harassment and abuse, the silence has been broken and heads continue to roll. Time magazine, you know how they always choose a person of the year to profile. They look back in the year before, choose a person that kind of characterized the year, good or bad, and they profile them. Well, for 2017, Time magazine did something different. They profiled as their person of the year a group of women who they called the silence breakers. Women who broke the silence of abuse and are no longer keeping quiet about what has for so long been ignored their abuse, the mistreatment of women. Uh, From this article, we hear this powerful declaration, quote, women have had it with bosses and coworkers who, who not only cross boundaries, but don't even seem to know boundaries exist. They've had it with the fear of retaliation, of, of being blackballed, of being fired from a job they can't afford to lose. They've had it with the code of going along, to get along. They've had it with men who use their power to take what they want from women. End quote. Many of these women are aware of their own profile, their own celebrity, their own ability to speak and be heard, even though they were silenced for years. But now that the silence has been broken, they're looking and, and, and looking for ways and they're create, creating ways to reach into the hidden and ordinary sectors of life where women are routinely abused and harassed. Hospitality workers, for example. Uh, migrant farm workers. Uh, workers in factory settings. They're establishing and have established a significant fund for the legal defense of women who, who would not normally have access to this kind of advocacy. They're using their their power and their profile to do that. The reality is no community has been exempt of sexual abuse and harassment. Sin's far-reaching effects knows no bounds. When the hashtag MeToo broke on social media, 
I witnessed your courage. I saw women and some men from this church bravely post in response to what was going on on your Facebook page, on Twitter, on Instagram, saying, me too. Me too. Bravely sharing that you have suffered harassment, rape, assault, abuse. And we realized that me too actually means we too. Right here in our community, in our church, in this valley. As your pastor, I have had the sacred privilege of hearing some of your Me Too stories. Over the years, my heart breaks every single time. I hear it from you. I hear it from us. In the lead up to this message, I heard even more. And I want us today to hear at least one representative story. One story from one of us, although you, you could literally hear a hundred more. You need to know this. But I want you to hear one representative story been written by one of us here today. Out of respect for her story and her family, uh, I'm going to hold her identity private. But I'd like you to hear her story written by her for us, for you, for this day. I'd like you to hear it in a woman's voice. And so I've asked Dana if she would come and read this story for us today. There is an epidemic of abuse. And despite the name, sexual abuse and harassment is far more about power than sex and stems from a perpetrator's need for control and dominance over another person. Nearly every woman I know has been touched inappropriately or harassed in some way. And so, like countless women and men, I have a Me Too story. Unfortunately, I have many Me Too stories of harassment and abuse. From my sixth grade teacher exerting his dominance over me and declaring that my worth was only in relation to my looks when he put chalk dust on my nose to cover up my freckles. To the respected man who showed 15-year-old me and my peers that a woman's value is in her sex appeal when he openly read sleazy magazines in front of us to the boys and men who pulled bra straps and purposefully brushed past me touching my breasts, to older men who leer and linger and place a hand on your back or your side just a little too hard and for a little too long, to men who tell rape jokes as if there was anything funny about violently violating another person, to being called one of the most derogatory and demeaning insults and being reduced in the eyes of the insulter as only a place to put a penis. In all these moments of harassment, the men involved used their power over me to push me down and to show me that because I'm a woman, I don't have the same worth that they do. But God says differently. I was created in his image, and I have worth beyond measure. 
statistics say that one out of four women and one out of six men have been sexually abused before they turn 18. Me too. And I carry the scars of abuse on my heart and soul, and I will for the rest of my life. I've found healing, but the scars still remain. As a young child, I was sexually abused by someone in a position of authority over me. I didn't know what it was at the time. All I knew was that it felt wrong, and I hated it. I blocked out the memories of that abuse for many years. And even though I didn't consciously remember what had happened to me, I felt damaged and of very little value for a large part of my life. About 10 years after my abuse had stopped, something happened that triggered my brain to recall long-buried memories. And as I relived the trauma, I remember crying out in agony that I had been hurt as a child by someone who should have cared for me, who I should have been able to trust would protect me. My pain and anguish at those memories was so profound. As a small child, my innocence had been taken away, and I had been used. Although I was never raped, and I was almost always fully clothed, I was used for someone else's sexual gratification, and I was told and shown repeatedly that I had no worth, that I was unlovable, that I was weak and fat and stupid and ugly, and that I deserved to be hurt. This trauma that I experienced as a child left me shattered and broken, feeling worthless and useless. I felt such deep shame. I tried to forget and avoid the pain of those memories and feelings. I welcomed the numbing effects of prescription drugs, sugar, and alcohol, but my wounded soul had sharp edges, and I couldn't dull that pain. I kept the abuse a secret and tried to forget about it. From the outside, it looked like I was confident and strong and had it all together. But on the inside, I was falling apart. I avoided trusting people and getting close to others. I had deep anger inside of me that always threatened to bubble over, and I had such a warped sense of self-worth. It has been a long journey, but through a lot of work, I've found healing. I've been able to speak my truth, acknowledging what happened to me. I've shared my story, and I will continue to do so on my own terms. I've found a community of fellow survivors and warrior sisters who understand and support me. I've forgiven the person who abused me because I don't need to carry that hate and anger anymore. I've forgiven myself because it was not my fault. God never left me. When I had nowhere else to turn and no one to count on, he was always there, and my faith kept me going when nothing else did. I was also given a loving and supportive husband who's always treated me with respect, honoring and cherishing me. Years before hashtag, hashtag me too, when I heard someone else's story, I said through tears with my voice breaking, me too. And almost every time I shared my story, another survivor would say me too in response. There is great solace. 
that comes from realizing that others have experienced similar trauma and that you are not alone. And so I share my story not because I need to tell it, but because someone else needs to hear it. I tell my story in the hopes that there will be change and that you too can find healing and support. Because I believe in the words of Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I want to thank the woman who wrote that for us. And thank you, Dana, for reading it. Before we go any further, I want to speak directly to those of you who are here today who can echo that story, who even as they heard the story today, inside, you whispered, me too. I'll speak directly to you for a moment. Because whatever happened to you, however you were mistreated or abused or manipulated or assaulted, at whatever age, whatever stage, whatever place, whatever situation, you need to hear clearly that that abuse was not your fault. It was not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't say something to invite it. It didn't matter what you were wearing. It didn't matter what you said. It didn't matter where you were. It didn't matter how many drinks you'd had. Nothing of what you did invited what happened to you. Nothing. You should not have been touched that way. You should not have been exploited that way. You should not have been put into that position. Never have you sh- should you have been treated that way. And, and I, I know that for, for many of you, as you grapple with your own stories, I, I know you've told me this, that part of your story has been this feeling of shame and of guilt that you've carried, that you, you've wondered, like, did, did I do something wrong that, that, that invited that? Did I send some kind of signal? Was it the shirt I was wearing? Is it something that I, that I said? Is this all that I'm worth? And you've carried shame and guilt, and you need to hear today. If you hear nothing else, you need to know that there was nothing that you did to make that okay, to make that acceptable, acceptable that you did not sin. Rather, you were sinned against that you didn't do something wrong, that you were wronged. And not only are you not to blame for this, but you need to know that you are so loved, that you are precious, that when God our Father looks at you, he looks at you with fantastic delight, that God celebrates you as a favored daughter, as a star son, that you are infinitely valued and created as a masterpiece by God himself, that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see someone used or dirty or sullied. He doesn't look at someone less than. He looks at you and he wonders at your beauty. He sings about your loveliness. He brags about you. Jesus brags about you. You are so, so loved in a way that absolutely defies imagination. And we stand with you as a community. We stand with you as a church, all of us together, as, a, as people who believe in the God of resurrection, who brings life out of the grave, 
a God of healing, a God of grace, knowing that wherever you are in the healing journey, some of you are just at the stage where you're even beginning to admit what has happened. Some of you are further along where you're coming, you're coming to a place of understanding that, 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 that there is freedom, that there is healing, wherever you are at in that healing journey. For you to know today that God passionately loves you, that he longs for you to experience more of his healing, more of his grace. And I'm so glad that you're part of this church, that you're here today. You know, over the last uh, few months, as this uh, Me Too movement has gathered steam, it's toppled the powerful, it's exposed abusers everywhere. We have seen in living color the deeds of darkness exposed to the light, the light of truth. And as I have had the privilege of hearing your stories over the years and in an increased way in the last while, as I've also read many other stories, and then, and then also as I've been praying and reading and, 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 and reflecting and preaching through this story of Ruth so far, God began to bring together Ruth's ancient experience with this current Me Too movement. Because in a way that is almost stunning, we discover in the story of Ruth a treatment of women that is actually godly. That's actually holy. It actually surpasses anything we would have expected in ancient culture. But as we are discovering, surpasses much of what we have come now to see is true in our culture today. We are still in the middle of our eight-week series in Ruth. I know this might feel like a radical sidestep, but it's actually emerging from this story in Ruth. And maybe you haven't been with us through this whole time. Maybe you heard about the topic today and you've, you've, you've come into this. I do encourage you to listen to the whole series, but I just want to set this, uh, this day in the context of the story that we've been exploring. See, the story of Ruth, it's a short story in the Old Testament, just early in. It's a story of devastating ruin of one family. The matriarch, Naomi, she lost her husband. She lost her married sons, and they didn't have any kids, which represented total loss for her as a family. The family line was done. She attempts to send away her foreign daughters-in-law, saying, you're not responsible for me anymore. One of them does the sensible thing. She goes home and tries to discover another life. But Ruth doesn't. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then pledges her life to her service and returns with her to her hometown in Bethlehem. Well, as soon as they show up, Ruth proceeds to go out into the fields and gather scraps of food. They're hungry. And she does that. God is gracious, as we discovered in the story. And Ruth finds far more favor in these fields than she ever would have expected. Not only getting a pot of food, but discovering a place of safety, a place of protection. And that's the story so far. That's where we are so far, halfway into the story of Ruth. But what I want to do today is pull back a bit and look more carefully at some of the interactions that emerge, particularly from chapter 2 in Ruth. Here's the social context of what's going on. Boaz, this wealthy landowner, employs men, multiple men, we don't know how many, but many men and and women, and then allows access to to his fields by gleaners, uh, which would be foreigners, uh, widows, the poor, the, the marginalized. He gives them access. This man, Boaz, is a man of power, position, and privilege. It's just true. But Ruth, on the other hand, was a foreign woman with no resources and no protection. 
This in a time and in a world where women had to have a male advocate or protector of some kind. A father, a brother, a husband, uh, an uncle, even a family friend. Someone that would provide some sort of backstop for them. But in this case, Ruth is quite literally the most vulnerable person you can imagine. She's out there in the fields, she's hungry, she's exposed, and there's no one in her court. Now, we might not realize it when we first read the story of Ruth, and those of us who've spent more time in Ruth, you know, we're so used to it being such a a gentle, amazing, grace-filled story. We love that. That's awesome. But I think sometimes we can forget that this context, this context where Boaz, this wealthy, powerful man, and and, and a, a woman like Ruth, this is a context ripe for exploitation where Ruth could have been fondled for food or abused for access or harassed just for being hungry. Not only Boaz, but every man out there, every man around her would have seen Ruth as a potentially easy picking. We cannot miss that because this story has been told over and over again in countless different ways from the ancient fields right to the modern day office. Or hotel. Or back closet. Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, you need something from me? You need something I have? Well, what are you going to give me so you can get it? How far are you willing to go to really get what you need? That story. Over and over again. What's more... We've drawn attention to this as much as possible. The story of Ruth is set in a time that literally is subtitled, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the subtitle of the era she lived in. And as a result, sexual violence was just rampant. During the time of the judges, which is chronicled in the book just prior to Ruth in the Bible, Some of the Bible's most horrific, abusive stories of violence toward women are told in this book, showing us what happens when people, and let's be honest, particularly men, reject God's goodness, reject God's desire, reject God's commands, and then do whatever is right in their own eyes. And women are always the first to pay the price for that. Always. This has been true in every culture, all through history, every time, every place. Women pay the the price for that. It's easy for us, though, to read the book of Judges with all its kind of crazy stories and, and, and you know, characterized by everyone doing what was right in their eyes and think, well, phew, I'm so glad I don't live back then. You know, that was then and this is now, right? It's so easy for us to think that. But that's exactly what the Me Too movement has exposed, that doing whatever was right in our own eyes, particularly in the ways that men have often mistreated and abused and harassed women, that's just as much a story of today as it was a story of ancient history. You know, if this story of Boaz and Ruth had been set in modern-day Hollywood or on Parliament Hill or Congress or in some back locker room in a sports arena or a newsroom or a hotel or a kitchen or factory right within the last few decades... Ruth would have been just as vulnerable, just as exposed, just as likely have been manipulated for sexual favors, just as preyed upon by leering perverts who touch or grab or force, just as, just as vulnerable or just as, as easily abused as people were way back then. We realize that time really hasn't changed that much, has it? 
And so what's actually so surprising, something we take for granted when we read Ruth, what's so surprising is how Ruth actually does not become another Me Too story. She could have so easily. It's as though Boaz, this man in this book, uh, probably unknown to him, unbeknownst to him, it's like he writes the first playbook on anti-harassment, anti-bullying, particularly in the workplace where the Me Too movement certainly has covered the length and breadth of abuse and harassment, but has also highlighted the way this has really been taking, uh, um, taking a toll in, in the workplace or in places where women have, have sought to move forward. Boaz instead insists on respect and honor and dignity. So I want to just look at this briefly for a moment because I want you to see how this plays out in this story. That's all, or most of it is from chapter 2 of Ruth. First, Boaz used his power and his position and his privilege, which he undoubtedly had. He used it to provide a safe place to work, a place of dignity and respect for women. What the Me Too movement has revealed is just how common it has been for men to use their power and their position and their privilege to take and to use women as was right in their own eyes, particularly when those women needed something like a job or even a connection or an opportunity. I mean, this is the story of Harvey Weinstein, isn't it? Like countless women abused and harassed by him. We also see that Boaz spoke to potential abusers. He set a gold standard for physical contact. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Boaz tells Ruth, I have told them, referring to his hired workers, the men, I have told them not to lay a hand on you. Boaz doesn't just look the other way when, when women are touched inappropriately. He doesn't just shrug it off as acceptable or normal or, you know, it's boys will be boys or something crazy like that. In fact, he he gets ahead of the potential danger and he puts into place policies of protection. In my fields, Boaz says, there will not be inappropriate physical contact, period. But I ask you, how many workplaces or or gyms or restaurants or hotels or, or back kitchens or, let's be honest, churches have been that proactive? Not many. And as we've seen, as the silence has been broken, we've discovered just how unsafe many of those places have been where women have had to endure the crossing of physical boundaries, both in subtle ways as well as in overt ways. We also see Boaz providing access to resources freely and without the expectation of favors. Boaz tells Ruth, Uh, to get a drink from the men's water, to not be afraid to do so. He instructs his farmhands to let her gather without reprimand. What's Boaz doing here? Boaz is making sure that Ruth is never in a position where she could be manipulated based upon her need. Boaz knows what many have experienced, that whenever there is a genuine need for something, for food, for drink, for rent, for a job, Whenever there is genuine need, there is always the risk of exploitation. People who are in need are far more easily abused than when, because they have needs they, they, they cannot ignore. They have got kids at home they have to feed. They have got rent that must be paid. They have a broken down old car that needs gas. And so Boaz provides access to resources without the risk of exploitation. 
We also see Boaz ensure emotional safety. This, perhaps, is, is one of the most incredible things we see here. Boaz directed his men not to make Ruth feel uncomfortable. Don't rebuke her. Don't humiliate her, he says in, in, in verse 16. And this is critical. I want you to see this because Boaz doesn't just provide for Ruth's physical protection. Boaz gives explicit instructions to his men not to make her feel vulnerable. He is concerned for her emotional and her verbal protection as well. He doesn't want her to feel ashamed or awkward or stupid. It's incredibly progressive. Boaz proactively made sure that Ruth wasn't just literally safe, but that she actually felt safe. She actually felt honored and respected. How many women have had to endure not only inappropriate and unwanted touching, but sometimes even in the absence of that, where people know, if I do that, I'm really in trouble. Even in the absence of that, have had to endure crude jokes or sexual propositions or pornographic images or videos or just lewd comments or awkward questions or catcalls, all of which contribute to their feeling of being exposed. They're not in a safe or an honoring place. Boaz leads the way by providing a safe place and expecting his men to not only honor this woman with their actions, but honor her with their words, paying attention even to how they are making her feel. That's incredible, folks. Incredible. But Boaz just keeps going. Then he offers long-term security. He invites Ruth to stay with his harvesting team for the whole season. And when Ruth relays this to her mother-in-law, Naomi, that night, Naomi's happy. She says, in verse 21, 22, she says, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. I want you to take note of something. Inviting Ruth to stay for the season is super costly to Boaz. We explored last week how Ruth took home a load. She took home 15 times what one of his workers getting paid. 15 times. Ruth was not cheap to have gleaning in his fields. She was expensive. And yet Boaz proactively seeks her protection at his own expense. And can I just say again, I've said this before, but I'm going to keep doing it. I want to undercut the idea that he did that because he himself had some kind of ulterior motive. Lust, love, even romance. That is not what's going on here. No, Boaz creates a safety zone of dignity and respect for Ruth, for women, at his own cost, in contrast to what many women have experienced when their future is shaky, when their jobs are unsure, when even their own homes are unsafe, when every strange street or every new location or every, every new job or neighborhood or even church can be a place where they do not feel safe. And then, even when given the opportunity to use or abuse, we'll see this a little bit next week, Boaz doesn't take it. He always acts with honor and respect toward Ruth. He sets in place protections and policies that see her value as an image bearer of God is always upheld. This is completely counter to the culture of his day, and as we're seeing, is completely counter to much of the culture in our day as well. So Boaz was amazing. If we had more you know, workplace folks like Boaz, men and women bosses who, who proactively sought to make honoring a priority, it would be a game changer, wouldn't it? But when we fast forward 
to the life of Jesus, we see something even greater than that, even more expansive, including even more people. Jesus was living in an abusively patriarchal society. And he knew how little women were regarded, how mistreated they were, how easily abused and belittled and divorced and discarded they had become. Due, as we see in the gospel stories, as they roll out due to the controlling power of sin and the pervasive wickedness of men. And so contrary to cultural expectation, contrary to societal norms, contrary to, frankly, what even you know, good people felt comfortable with, Jesus reached out and treated women as loved and valued and important as precious daughters of his father over and over again, all through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the first four books of the New Testament. We see Jesus interacting with women from a whole variety of backgrounds and experiences. We see him interacting with an abused foreign woman like the Samaritan woman at the well. Women caught in cycles of, of sexual sin, like the woman caught in adultery. Wealthy women who came, became part of his ministry support team. Um, women who were experiencing his healing in their lives and yet had a checkered past but a, a bright future. Women like Mary Magdalene. That all around him, every step of the way, Jesus loved women and particularly would reach down and raise up women who had been shunted to the side who'd been exposed, who were vulnerable. And he would love them in ways that would lead to their transformation. But as we see, would also lead to the transformation of his other followers as well. Men and women alike. So that his own followers began to see that women weren't a less than, but they were full and equal members in God's new family, just as God had always intended them to be. Jesus at the end of his earthly life, after he'd risen again from the dead, he promised that his Holy Spirit would come and would fall upon all flesh, young men, young women, old men, old women, experiencing the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that they together, as men and women, would be sent into the mission to bring the healing, forgiving power of Jesus to the world. In fact, at the end of, of the Gospel of John, the fourth of the stories of Jesus, Jesus chose... Mary Magdalene, the woman who'd been experiencing the healing power of Jesus, chose her to be the first one to see him when he rose again from the dead. And then to be the first one to go and tell others, (laughs) to tell the men, that Jesus had in fact risen. Jesus changed everything. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to make those changes real in his family in the church. How else would you explain how a religious nut like Paul, Pharisee, part of this really uptight sect that was really focused on, well, getting everything right, who very likely prayed a prayer, a daily prayer, that went something like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Think about that for a moment. You know how that shaped your mind and heart if that was part of your daily devotional life. Thank you, God, for not making me one of those guys or her. How else would you explain a man who would have been nurtured in that kind of worldview to once he encountered Jesus and began following Jesus and was filled with the Holy Spirit, 
who then penned these words instead, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the heart of Jesus. And he grew it in the heart of his people. He grew it in the heart of Paul, the heart of Jesus for all people, particularly for the vulnerable, the broken, particularly in our context of today for women. He grew his heart in his new family that we were all one in Christ. Well, from Boaz to Jesus to Paul to this new family of God, women are valued, loved, and empowered as full and equal partners equal members of God's spirit-filled people. All women are to be loved. All women are to be valued. And there's no place, not ever, not once, in no way is there a place for abuse or exploitation or harassment. You know, in another letter that Paul wrote, he gave explicit instructions for how men and women in the body of Christ were to treat one another as members of God's new family. Because like us, they had a lot of relearning to do. Their culture had taught them a lot of things ways of seeing each other, ways of interacting, ways of thinking about members of the opposite sex. Their culture had taught them a lot. And the Holy Spirit knew as he knows, he knows today, he knew it then, as he comes into our hearts and lives, he's got some retraining to do. He's got to renew our minds. He's got to change our perspective. That's part of the, why we continue to dig into God's word and let the Holy Spirit work because we know that we are not seeing things straight. We need him to continue to reframe and and, and help us understand his ways, not our ways. And so Paul, he wrote this letter helping this uh, this community understand what these new relationships would look like. And in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Paul wrote this. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Absolute purity. To the point of today, we are to love each other as family members are to love each other. Treating women as members of the family, not as sexual objects, not as people you use or exploit or mistreat in any way. Now, I want to point out something careful here because I know tragically that many of you have actually suffered abuse at the hands of people in your own family. I know this is true. And I am so sorry that that is part of your story. People who should have protected you didn't. Fathers and brothers and cousins uncles, sometimes sisters and aunts. And so I want to I just say to you, Paul's instructions here, he, he's not imagining that kind of dysfunctional or deformed family life. When he says to love each other that way, he's, he's, he's pointing towards God's, God's original desire for the family, that, that a family would be a safe place where mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters treat one another with dignity and respect they encourage one another and affirm one another. And so if that's been your experience and, and you recoil maybe from the idea that, that we would love each other that way because you were not loved rightly uh, uh, by your dad or by your brother 
by your sister. I want you to know that Jesus wants to see you experience healing. And part of the way that that healing occurs is as we experience what God's family is supposed to be like, what family is the way that the family is supposed to encourage and affirm and protect, not in an abusive or a sexualized or exploitive way. We are, as God's family, to emulate relationships with one another, as he caps it off at the end, with absolute purity, with holiness, with, a, with honor, with beauty and goodness. We're to view each other with God's full desire and God's plan in mind, that we are to live whole and healed lives in him, that, that we in community are able to, to receive and give love. We're able to trust and be trusted. We're able to affirm our gifts and empower one another and encourage each other as the Lord is working in our hearts and lives. And so whatever your family background, we are called to love each other as Christ loved us, to emulate in our lives and in our lifestyle the very heart of Jesus for each other. Well, how do we respond? I mean, what does this mean for us today? I, I, I think a few things. I mean, there's, there's, of course, I think lots of responses, and perhaps our responses are as varied as we are today. But I think uh, five things emerged for me as I thought about our response today. First, we will honor Me Too experiences. You know, part of the reason why silence uh, has for so long held people quiet is because when people would bring it up, they would be shut down. They would be told, don't say it. Don't dishonor the family. Don't expose him. Think of the hurt you'll do to the church. And you were silenced. People were silenced. Men and women were silenced. And I think our first response is that we will honor Me Too experiences, both in women and in men. We're going to honor them. We're going to hold them. We're going to listen to them. We're going to receive them. We're going to weep with those who weep. We're going to walk with each other. We're going to honor those experiences. We're not going to dismiss them or shut them down or think, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. Because too often that's been the case and people who need to receive healing, who need to to have someone hear their story They haven't found a place to do that. We are going to be a place that does that. We're going to be a community that honors Me Too experiences. And in in the context of those experiences, then have an opportunity to speak truth to the lies. The truth that you are loved. The truth that God passionately longs for you to experience healing. We're going to undercut those lies that said you deserved it. You're fat. You're stupid. Whatever lies were seeded into your life or abused into your life. We're going to cut away those lies with the truth of Jesus' goodness and grace and love that looks at you and longs for you to know just how passionately he is in love with you. And we're going to be, we're going to be conduits of that in other people's lives as we honor their Me Too experiences. We'll have an opportunity to share what is more true than their abuse. What is more true then you're hurt or your wounds, and that is that Jesus loves you. We're going to honor those Me Too experiences. The second response, I believe strongly, and this one is harder to hear. We will repent of our sins. Sins both of commission, things we do, and sins of omission, things we didn't do. We're going to repent of those things. As men, and sometimes women, we're going to repent of patterns of abuse 
where we have hurt other people. We're going to repent of those things. We're going to bring them into the light. For some of us, that means you need to own up to a past sin that may be years buried You may need to open up to that. For some of you, it means you need to come clean on patterns in your life where you've caused harm in someone else. For some of you, that means you need to report yourself to the police. And I'm here to tell you today that if that is you, I will go with you. I will walk with you. I will stand with you every step of the way. If you need to repent and get clean on something you have done that is actually criminal, I want you to know that you too are loved and the only pathway to freedom and forgiveness is through repentance. And Jesus loves you and longs for you to experience goodness, but you have got to come clean. And if I could say this in the strongest possible language, it's actually your only hope that you would repent, that you would turn from your sin. It doesn't matter if the the sin itself has stopped, even if it's in the past and you've never acknowledged it, it's time to get clean before Jesus, to throw yourself in the mercy of Jesus Christ and experience healing, but begin to seek his pathway forward. For some of you, that may be the case. It could be that it's not criminal. It could be that you've, you've just acted in ways that are inappropriate. You've done things, said things, thought things. It could be that for some of you, men and women. You've dipped in pornography way too much. Any amount is too much. But you've allowed pornographic images to fuel your mind and your heart. Listen, it is absolutely impossible for you to treat an older woman as your mother and a younger woman as your sister with absolute purity if you're fueling your mind with that kind of crap. It is not possible for you to love someone with the heart of Jesus if you're imagining them and seeing them objectified and used and exploited. It's not possible. And so for some of us, Statistically speaking, people here today, men and women, we've got to repent. We've got to turn away from that. We've got to get accountable. We've got to throw our computers out in the middle of the street. We've got to do whatever we've got to do to try to get our hearts and minds right with Jesus and right with others to repent and turn away. And listen, you need to know this. This is the heart of Jesus for you too because he wants you to experience his goodness and his life and his love flowing through you. He wants you to be healed from whatever crap you're carrying. So you can experience all that he has for you. And it's only going to happen if you turn away from your sin and turn and throw yourself on Jesus' mercy. The only way. For some of us, it's going to be repenting of the ways that we have simply not been willing to acknowledge the hurt that's gone on around us. Maybe someone in our family who's been trying to tell us their story, but we've been ignoring it because we don't want to hear it because it implicates us or it implicates an uncle or it implicates a friend or it implicates a church or a pastor. And it's time for us to admit and repent of our omission, the ways that we've ignored it or overlooked it. We need to do what we need to do to repent and turn away from sin so that God's forgiveness and grace can flow. It's not time for us to defend ourselves. It's not time for us to, 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 to get all upset. The reality is people have been hurt in the church. And I know for some of us, that's you. And so as a church, we need to repent. Ways that we've not been a safe place. 
ways that we haven't enacted policies of protection. We, we, we enact them now, but in the past. Ways that we've, we've, we've just not acknowledged difficulty, ways we've even covered up. You know it's true, it's happened. We hear the stories all over the place. Sometimes I heard stories just this week where two different women sharing stories of abuse, one where the home was very unsafe and the church was the safe place, but the other one where it was the other way around. Home was safe, but church wasn't. So we repent of that. And the opportunity we have both as men and women, but I want to say right now, particularly men, to stand in the place and say, we are so sorry that you were hurt by a father or a brother or an uncle or a pastor or a friend. We're not here to defend ourselves. We're here to tell you that we are so sorry. Would you even forgive us? Would you, would you, would you even, even, even help us understand? We're not here to defend or, or try, to, try to cover over, but rather to repent and to turn away so that we as a community can experience God's goodness. Third, we will speak truth to power and abuse. We're not going to tolerate forms of harassment or abuse or bullying in any way. We're not going to shrug it off and laugh it off. We're not going to look the other way. We're not going to excuse it. We're not going to remain silent in its presence. This is true for all of us, men and women. We're saying we're going to take it on the chin for others, maybe literally, maybe proverbially. But we're actually going to going to actually break the silence when it's time to break the silence, whether it's at work or in a hallway at school or online. Oh, Lord, help us. Online. Where we see abuse and harassment and disrespect, wherever it occurs in our presence, we're going to stand up and say, no, don't do that. Don't say that. That's wrong. She is valued. He is valued. We will not tolerate this kind of behavior. We're going to speak. We're going to break the silence. Let's be honest. We're going to be that awkward person in the lunchroom who not only doesn't laugh at the joke, but speaks up and says, that's awful. I don't agree with that. That's stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know that person? The one they'll start calling the prude or the religious nut? Or, you know, oh man, they're so overly sensitive. Or God forbid, someone might even call you politically correct. How insulting is that? You'll absorb those. We will absorb those snide remarks that people make because they're uncomfortable because you would not stand by. We would not stand by and let people be harassed or belittled, let women be objectified. We'll say, no, 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 shut up. Not, not while I'm here. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should get some counseling. Heck, you should go to church. We'll do whatever we can with all of our power, and sometimes we may feel like we have no power at all, but we'll just kind of throw ourselves out there and be willing to look stupid as we speak the truth to power and call it what it is, sinful and offensive and wrong. Because it's true. Fourth, we'll be a community of love. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful chapter describes love in so many wonderful ways. Right at the end it says, love always protects. Love always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And I think that is, like a, that is like a banner we can put over our community say, we are going to be that kind of a community. We're going to be a community that always protects, that always trusts, that always hopes, that always perseveres for the sake of others, for the sake of men and women and children, but in particular for the sake of people who are vulnerable, people who've been exposed, people who've been wounded and hurt. 
and crushed. But we are going to be a community for them. Community for each other. A community that protects and trusts, hopes and perseveres always. And then fifth, following very closely on that, that would be a safe community of healing. We believe in the healing power of Jesus Christ, who is just as alive and just as powerful and just as loving today as he ever was when he was walking around in Palestine. He is present by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he longs to bring healing to people's lives, to your life and to the lives of others. We believe in the healing power of Jesus Christ. We also believe in the healing power of forgiveness. I know that many of you who have told me your story, it is a significant part of your journey when you came to the place where you're able to forgive your perpetrator. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget what they did to you. That is not possible. But you no longer hold them to account for it in the sense of saying, I'm going to continue to wish damnation on them. I'm going to continue to to, to hate them. I'm going to continue to hold bitterness. You say, no, Jesus, I'm giving that over to you. I forgive them. What they did was not right or okay, but I forgive them. And you know that in your life, those of you who've journeyed through that, it's at the time, the moment, the season where you've come to really embrace forgiveness, that you've experienced wonderful, incredible, life-changing transformation in your life because the power of forgiveness knows no bounds as Jesus operates in our lives. We also are a community that believes in the healing power of truth, that there can't actually be healing without truth. There can't actually be reconciliation without truth. Truth sets us free. And we will pursue that in the name of Jesus for everyone who comes, anyone that we gather with, that we, we connect with, that we, we're meeting and living life with and reaching out to. We're going to do this in our regular gathering. We, we're going to be that kind of community when we gather in small groups. We're going to be the kind of community just like that as we scatter out throughout the week in our conversations, in our coffee, coffee shops, in our, in our schools, in our workplaces. We're going to be that healing community of love out there too. I also want to highlight a next step for us as a community. I want to offer a special invitation today. Tonight at 7 p.m., we're inviting women, women only, to come back tonight for another step forward. Listen, we want to offer you an opportunity to perhaps share your Me Too story. We certainly want to offer you an opportunity to listen to someone else's Me Too story an opportunity to pray together, to explore what are those next steps for us as a community to be this healing community of love and truth and power and forgiveness. And so we invite women, women only. I will not be here. We facilitated by Dana and another member of our congregation who has gone through uh, her own Me Too experience. And we want to just offer this. Now listen, this is, we're, we're doing our best to offer a very safe place for, for you tonight as women. And we invite you to come. And if you feel frightened by that, and I understand that, I, I just, I just want to encourage you, bring, bring some supportive friend or family member, um, but come out. It's an important part, I believe, of, of your healing or your journey. And, and I also want to speak particularly to some women who are here today that we are so thankful that, that you don't have the kind of abusive, perhaps, or assaultive uh, Me Too experience. And so you may think, well, that's not really for me. I, I want to I just urge you to come out tonight 
to be with your community, to be with other women, so that you can hear Me Too stories, so that you can pray alongside other sisters. Like it really is for all of us. Tonight's meeting is only for women because we want to provide a safe place, a safe zone. But I want to speak to men as well today, okay? I know that there are men who have a Me Too story, particularly when it comes to childhood abuse. And so I want to tell you that we're not ignoring you either. And so I want to invite you, if you have a, a Me Too story as a man, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. They're, they're, we're not having a specific gathering for you, but I want to invite you to do this. I want you, I challenge you, I encourage you to find a friend that you can talk to that is trustworthy. You are welcome to contact me and ask me for a private, confidential appointment. I want you to know that there's power in breaking the silence and moving forward in what Jesus has for you. We want to be a healing community. Tonight's gathering is for women, but as men, I challenge you to break the silence, to find someone you can trust. As we end today, I want to ask this question. What if every woman, every man, every child were really loved and treasured and treated the way that God had intended them to be? I want you to imagine together with me a world where women don't have to wonder if they're going to be safe anymore. Where little girls don't go to bed at night afraid of who's going to wake them up in the middle of the night. Where women aren't backed into impossible corners or forced into positions of vulnerability where little boys aren't mistreated where men aren't acting out of their own wounds and their own sins, the perverse desires that are causing greater hurt. I want you to imagine workplaces and schools and dirt roads and empty elevators were places, as places where women are no longer afraid to go. I want you to imagine a community, a church, where things are always in the light, where things are not, not going undercover, where there's, there's not this continuation of silence, where, where things are out in the open and young women are not exploited, but they're rather empowered and encouraged as sisters, as followers of Jesus, where young men are empowered as brothers to be men after the heart of God, where older women are, are not exposed for gratification, but, but are actually upheld as wonders of grace and where men are truly godly men of valor and honor and strength, much what we see in Boaz and certainly what we see in Jesus. I want you to imagine this because this is what Jesus himself is imagining. It's what he's dreaming. It's what he's working toward. It's what he's calling us to do, to be, to live as his new creations who honor and uphold and value each and every person, man, woman, and child as the treasures they are. This is the vision that Jesus is calling us to embody. Right here, right here in our church, right in our families, right in this valley, for the sake of the valley, for us to be the living, breathing, loving, speaking, healing, sharing, protecting body of Christ given for the world. So that never again does a woman grow up and have to say, me too. Never again does a little boy grow up into a man and have to say, me too. Never again. Because they've discovered safe places, healing places, places where God is honored and people are loved. I'm going to invite Amanda to come with her team. They're going to sing us a, a song because wherever you're at today, in your story, in your journey of healing, whatever you fear, whatever you desire, whatever you hope, whatever confusion you carry, Jesus is calling us to come 
to follow him, to repent, to be healed, to live into and receive from him his vision and his life for us. And his promise to us is that he'll be with us every step of the way. Listen to this song, and then I'll come up to closing prayer. Jesus, there's no greater truth than that. You will never leave us, that we are not alone. And Lord Jesus, I pray today as we conclude this time together, that that would be cemented into our hearts and minds wherever we are at in this journey. Friends, I can ask you please rise. We're going to pray today, Lord, as we finish both a prayer of repentance and a prayer of healing. Lord Jesus, today we stand and acknowledge that for many of us, we feel your conviction, the conviction of your Holy Spirit upon us right now to repent for a sin of commission, things we have done. It could be pornography. It could be abuse. It could be inappropriate behavior. It could be a, a particular event. We'll also repent from sins of omission, ways that we have looked the other way, ways we have silenced, the ways we have ignored or just not been proactive. Lord Jesus, in your grace, we ask you to forgive us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to turn away from sin, to seek brothers and sisters to walk with us into greater freedom, that we would leave behind lies and destruction and heartache, patterns of behavior and addictions and habits that destroy both our lives and the lives of others. We return away from those things and we return toward you and receive your Holy Spirit, receive your forgiveness, receive all that you have for us, that we would take the courageous step to move forward in whatever way we need to, to receive consequences for our actions, to to, to make changes in our lives so that we can live the way that you have called us to live, to be who you've called us to be. Thank you for your forgiveness hard won on the cross, given freely to us. And today, Lord, if there are some very specific ways that we need to repent and turn, I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal that to us and that we would not leave here today. We would not go through this week coming up without taking the steps you're calling us to take. Jesus, I also want to pray today For those who, this is a very difficult topic because it is exposed, even this morning, it has exposed old stories, memories, wounds, heartache, either in the past or, Lord have mercy, even today. And I ask, Lord Jesus, for healing. Like the bleeding woman in in the Gospels, that we would reach out to touch your clothing, and know that you are the key, you are the link, you are the only one who can bring healing to our lives, Lord Jesus, that we would reach out to you. I pray for each one today who carries those wounds, who needs to receive healing, for those who know you and those who do not yet know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would reach out, that we would reach out to you and ask you to heal us. We believe that you are present here and that you are present to heal. And so, We hold up our hands and we offer ourselves to you and we ask that you bring healing to us. And that tonight, as there's a gathering of women here, 
And ask, Lord Jesus, that that would be a truly healing experience where you are present and bringing healing. And, and that that would permeate our, our, uh, the rest of us as we, as we share stories, as we, as we lean in, as we break the silence, as we receive your healing, your grace, as we receive your Holy Spirit into our lives, that we would, we would receive all that you have for us. Lord Jesus, that we would be a community repentant and being healed in you. That is our prayer today. Would you send us in the power of your Holy Spirit to be conduits of your grace and healing in others' lives? There are so many Me Too stories. There's so many people around us who need to be called into the life that you have for them. May we, with courage and with grace, may we be your people for the sake of others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here today. I continue to pray for you each and every day that God's grace would be made real in your life. Go in grace and hope you can join us for coffee.